Welcome to a special bite-sized episode of Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. I'm Tay. What's up, everybody? We got a special episode today. We're really excited to be talking about Dune. Yes. Yes, this is very exciting. We both saw Dune. We saw it together with a nice group of friends. It was a great time. And uh, over the past, uh, I'd say, you know, week and a half since it came out or so, we've been, with everyone, we've been worried and a little afraid that it wouldn't get a, uh, a, second, a second movie, a sequel greenlit. But uh, as the movie tells you, fear is the mind killer. Right, Tay? Yeah, no need to fear. We have got word that there will be a sequel. It's being fully funded. It's going to have a purely theatrical release, according to Legendary mm-hmm. Pictures. All they, very they good will, news. They will go back on that. They're not going <laughs> to. Don't, I don't believe any of them. <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's a nice thought, at least, that right now they're saying it's theatrical only. Um, but if nothing else, there's been plenty of opportunity to see something like this in theaters. Um, we've both seen it twice at this point. I was uh, lucky enough to go catch it in IMAX in Toronto. Very as well. lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we actually we had a bit of an issue with ours. We saw it the... Like the Thursday evening, yeah. So the, the opening, the evening. very first night, and it was mm-hmm. in at the Landmark Cinemas. Yeah, for those for those unfamiliar, <laughs> Landmark is it's just what we've got here in our hometown. Uh, it's smaller than Cineplex. It used to be Empire, I want to say, right? And um, they have their own form of like premium viewing experience called Laser Vision. Laser. Ultra AVX, laser, laser, ultra AVX. Yeah. Okay, laser vision, whatever. Yeah, it's laser, something. laser quest. Yeah, they put the movie on with lasers. Um, actually, there's very few lasers, I'd say, given the name. Yeah, um, it's uh, there's like some serious mistakes in the transfer. Uh, almost yeah. all the incredibly dark scenes, which there are a few longer dark scenes in the film, uh, the mm-hmm. blacks are completely bleeding out and are completely desaturated or like overly saturated. I think is the right way to term yeah, it's it. It's just a just a big inky mess. A big mess for about fifteen minutes of a pretty climactic part of the film at the end. So yeah, it was that was a very disappointing aspect of the screening. But I don't want to dwell on that too much because I want to talk about how great this movie is. It's so good. And I mean, just one other point on that. It's a shame about those parts because night scenes, you know, they are dark no matter what. And Greg Fraser did such a good job on this movie. It is a gorgeous movie. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen it yet, just, you know, we are going to get in some spoilers for some scenes. And like, we cannot highly recommend enough seeing this on a big screen. Absolutely. I know. Lots of you probably have access to it on HBO Max at home. Even if you've got a nice big 50-something inch TV, you really got to go see this on a big screen. You got to have the music rumbling in your bones. You got to you got to see uh, these people and these creatures and these desert landscapes on as big a screen as possible. Couldn't agree more there. You know, there's a market for straight to home releases and this does not fit into that category. I have grown into the idea that it's okay you don't have to see everything on a big screen but there are certain types of movies there are certain spectacles that there's just no two ways about it you you need to see something like this on a screen that dwarfs you that absolutely makes you feel small when you're watching it and dune is probably one of the most is one of the most clear examples of a theatrical movie Mm -hmm. it's just it's huge it's it's massive cinema and especially if you have 
the availability somewhere near you if you can travel and get to an IMAX screen I would especially recommend that it's very artfully used when you switch from your standard ratio to your big taller IMAX one it's used almost specifically a lot for just the the scenes on Dune on Arrakis it makes the desert seem bigger and especially like a lot of this movie if you've seen it you know it's a lot of Paul having visions and it's really neat to see the movie cut between a standard ratio when when you're on Paul's face when he's sleeping or when he's having a fit and then it cuts into his visions and they're immediately you know 30% taller on both sides uh, it's it's a great effect it's it's used artfully I wouldn't say it's just oh it's big we we got an IMAX camera and we made it big right so that that's the kind of stuff that I think IMAX is designed to do too. just mm. give you that those options in terms of the creative look of the film yeah but uh as we mentioned this is a bite-sized episode we're not going to go as long as we normally do so we will just hop right into it again if you haven't seen the movie got a brief synopsis for you here Based on Frank Herbert's seminal novel of the same name, Dune tells the story of Paul Atreides, heir to a dukedom and a potentially even greater destiny, as he begins a new life with his parents on the dangerous desert planet Arrakis. As political unrest foments war over the planet and its valuable spice melange, Paul fights to stay alive and find his role in the desert-dwelling Fremen society. Now that, I think I actually did a pretty good job in terms of what Dune, and we should say Dune Part 1 covers. That's what I was going to say, yeah. This is Part 1. should be said that this is a pretty long fantasy novel, and it's known to be difficult to adapt because a lot of it takes place in people's minds. And there's also just a lot of world to build. There's a lot of stuff to cover. There's a lot of people to introduce. Yeah, so we're going to do our best today to kind of cover what we're talking about in the scene specifically. There are a few science fiction terms that you might that are not like part of our english vocabulary so we'll do our best mm -hmm. but it should be noted that the movie does a tremendous job at kind of easing the audience into this this is a movie mm -hmm. that was meant to not only appease dune fans but also to bring in a much larger audience than what dune already had and i think the film did a great job mm -hmm. at that so if that's one of your hesitations before going to see this movie don't worry it actually does a tremendous job at laying the groundwork for understanding the terminology being used throughout the film. Yeah, I do think it's very accessible. I think both in terms of like the way that they bring in the information, like he went the same route as Lynch in terms of having an opening voiceover. He didn't have someone just stare at the camera and deliver it like in the David Lynch earlier version, which was, is that 84? Yeah, and that's just inefficient yeah. filmmaking, to be honest. And I like David Lynch yeah. a lot, but that's inefficient. Yeah, but this one you get, I mean, you get Chani giving a voiceover over some really fantastic visuals and the beginning of Zimmer's score. So I think it, it works pretty well. It's fairly graceful. And there is a lot of exposition in this movie, but it's generally well justified within the context of the scene. It doesn't always land gracefully. Um, There's some key things that they obviously wanted to get out. But it's also, the other thing is that, like, it's not for being a pretty intense movie and one that can be could be scary it's accessible in terms of age too right i think it's you know it's pg-13 so it definitely something like i think you can bring in and and make some new sort of sci-fi epic fantasy fans uh with this movie yeah i denis villeneuve as we've talked about on the show several times already uh the director of this movie he doesn't resort to violence when it's not necessary you know he's not someone who is going to embellish violence unless it is supposed to have a very personal impact on someone seeing the violence. So the violence that is mm -hmm. in this film is very PG, but it's done. Mm -hmm. it, I'm saying that in the nicest possible way, because typically that would mean 
it's not real enough for me mm-hmm. as a experienced movie watcher, but this is not the case. This is very skillful filmmaking to keep you enticed with the action, but throughout the movie, there's not very much gore in any way. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's built right out of the the book and what what's being drawn upon because these are almost all the characters come from some form of warrior cultures, right? Almost everybody in the book they're all trained to be fighters, so violence itself to them I don't think would be that affecting. So to show it on screen, beheadings or 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 bloody bloodiness things like that would be gratuitous in terms of the context of the book as compared to the things that really have an effect on our characters are are uh when they when they lose control, when they um you know loss of family, loss of status, things like that. Like these these traumatic experiences are not based around violence, they're based upon like this very difficult journey that Paul begins in this one. Yeah, for such a a massive scaled film there's so much personal emotional uh, conflict at stake here mm-hmm. every character has kind of their moment of grief of triumph you know obviously some more than others I one of my very few critiques of the film and this is being nitpicky is that I wanted more from all of these side characters that I love from the book mm-hmm. I wanted just more moments with them but this is already yeah. a two hour 40 minute movie or something like that so I do understand and I am very hopeful that there will be a director's cut, but it's not necessary. I think this movie stands on its own as a very strong film, and I don't think anything is severely undercut. Yeah, I would say my main issue with it isn't even necessarily a fair issue. I understand why it happened, but you you go from Blade Runner 2049 to this, and I really love the pacing of those Blade Runner 2049 scenes. We talked about this in the other episode. They're They're slow, and you can live in these spaces, and there's all this downtime in between people in conversations this movie moves pretty fast well i think also like we saw it with a couple people who hadn't read the books they didn't find it to be inaccessible so i think they struck the right balance for um trying to get as much in as they could and like my shout out later will be something that we'll talk about how like it's maybe something that could have been on the cutting room floor but it still made it into the movie and that's great uh, but the movie does does move lightning fast. It doesn't have that artful pace from Blade Runner 2049, but I understand why it couldn't. And and yeah, they keep in mind, they didn't have the second one secured financially yet, so they are trying mm-hmm. to make a movie that could generate enough money and be accessible enough to a wide enough audience that they could make the yeah. second movie, which you can say what you want. You can be critical of that. It's in itself, but I think that they did what they had to do to make a blockbuster successful, but it's doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't do a disservice to the original text at all. I think Frank Herbert would be very pleased with seeing something so carefully crafted for the big screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can you can see that like there are a couple of things we'll recommend later on uh, where Denny talks about the film, and it's always coming from a point of he's saying trying to please like his inner eleven or fourteen year old whenever he first read the book, mm-hmm. and it like changed his life, and he loved it so much. So much of his like direction and design choices and anytime he wasn't sure how to answer a question he'd just go look at the text again yep. and and try to go right from there so it is it's it's both faithful and accessible which is a real high wire act uh with something like this and after coming off of 2049 this is not something that you see very commonly in blockbusters something that th- mm. is this visually stunning um mentally compelling i don't know there's there's yeah. so much going on um, mm-hmm. I, and and as you, I no yeah I was just gonna segue into our scene. I just want to say you mentioned wanting more times with some of the characters. 
going into this, I was worried that there wouldn't be a lot of Duke Leto. Um, but uh, the scene that we're going to talk about today, like they give him a lot of heroism and they give him his moment to shine. I, w- I was really happy to see it in there. So why don't we, why don't we launch in? Sure. So yeah, Duke Leto played by Oscar Isaac. When I heard he was casted, I was like, oh, they must have more planned for the character than was kind of given to him in the books because mm-hmm. in the books, he's not a major part of the story. He is kind of out of the story before it, it all begins really. But mm-hmm. I love how this movie handled being the first part of a two part series. It does do some of the characters justice that it didn't need to service as well as it did, including Duke Leto. So in this scene, Paul Atreides, Duke Leto and Gurney Halleck accompany Imperial ecologist Liet Kynes on an ornithopter ride into the desert to the site of a sand crawler, a colossal desert machine used to refine and harvest precious spice. After an equipment malfunction, they must react quickly to save the sand crawler's crew from an incoming sandworm. The scene stars Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto, Timothy Chalamet as Paul, Sharon Duncan Brewster as Liet Kynes, and Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck. Yeah, there were so many scenes to pick from in this movie, obviously. Even having just seen it twice, there were a couple different options we were throwing around. But this one, I think, works really well. There's some great characterization in it. There's some action in it. You get to see some very cool design. You get introduced to, arguably, the most important character in the Dune universe, uh, the uh, the giant sandworms. And uh, and you get you get a little chunk more of, of uh, Paul's journey. This, uh, this, this is a pivotal scene in a number of ways. Yeah, I really like how the scene came together because in my mind, there's not a lot of direction you could take the scene. The scene in the book exists almost exactly like this. And the fact that Villeneuve was able to film the full scene to this degree of accuracy, um, I think, I don't know, that's kind of the way I felt about a number of scenes in the film. But this scene, he really knocked out of the park because it is so important to enticing an audience that you might that might not have the experience of reading the dune book so Mm -hmm. getting like the first glimpse of the sandworms and understanding exactly what's happening with the uh spice refining Mm -hmm. all that is kind of done is done so well and so succinctly in this scene that it just translates i don't know unbelievably to film yeah very gracefully like they set up the scene in a way that allows there to just be questions and answers Mm -hmm. about the industry of spice mining Right. Or even and even just to understand that, like the the dunes of sand are not big piles of spice. There is spice in the sand and on the sand and it looks different. And then it gives you this sort of um, visual iconography for what it looks like when it's swirling around, which, again, Greg Frazier and, and the special effects team like did an incredible job of when when they're actually on the level. And like the ornithopters are, are blowing sand around. Yeah. And you see it sort of sparkling in, in, in focus in the screen. Mm-hmm. It's very cool stuff. And also, not to gloss over it, but the design of the ornithopters. This is we can't over we can't skip over yeah. that. That's that was one this of the most impressive the first, things. Yeah. I think it's one of the only times I spoke during the screening to you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's insane that like you take something where in the book it's like okay, like they're helicopters, but they have like flapping wings. Like, at what point can you make that cool or even like believably functional? And it's right after they arrive on Arrakis and Thufir Hawat gets them into an ornithopter to get them from the landing field to the to Arakeen. And they give you, you know, they give like probably 45 to 60 seconds to just the warm-up and operation of an ornithopter, um, where it's, it's four like dragonfly wings st- sort of vibrate and pulse in the air to develop some, sort, some form of thrust. When I was reading the book, I thought that that was an incredibly inefficient method for flight. 
However, mm-hmm. they really make you believe that this is a far advanced method for flight. And when you see the movie and you see the buildup of these ornithopters as they prepare to take off. And mm-hmm. it really sets the stage for the rest of the movie because you understand like how capable these uh, machines are of navigating the desert. And that really helps mm-hmm. at every other stage of the movie where you like whether it's when Duncan Idaho is like leaving the city and he's able to pull off all these fancy maneuvers or whether it's Duke mm-hmm. Leto in this scene specifically that we're talking about, who's able to understand the machine so quickly, even though like, yes, he said that he wanted to be a pilot and yes, they came from Caledon where they had to conquer the air with flight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But all of that is just it. Once again, it just translates well. Like these machines just look like they are capable and like it cannot be overstated how cool the design of these things are. And I, I do love, like, in terms of him in flying it and how he approaches this dilemma where essentially they're going to lose a sand crawler to a worm. Worms always come after the sand crawlers, and they have a system in place for getting the sand crawlers out before the worms show up. Through a ship called the Carryall, by the way. Yeah. And in how Leto deals with the situation, I think, is a great point of characterization that adds more depth to his character and gives you a nice counterpoint to their sworn enemies and the people who used to have a fiefdom over Arrakis, the Harkonnens. Um, you see how he values human life, all these things like that. Um, so it, it, it's great. Once he realizes that, yeah, they're going to lose the spice, but they're also going to lose the crew, he immediately starts doing the math and going like, okay, we can take six people in each ornithopter. We need to find room for three more. Everyone's like, but we're going to lose the spice. And, and, like, they're already, like, they're in the red on their spice production, right? Like, they're an uphill battle. Yeah. And he doesn't even hesitate in terms of saying, like, I don't care about the spice. I'm going to get my men out of there. Drops the wings on these ornithopters into a, into a steep dive. Like, there's this great action. You, you believe that, like, if he wasn't a duke, he'd be a pilot. Like, I love it. It's just, it, it moves so well. It's nicely foreshadowed from that earlier scene where he mentions that to Paul mm-hmm. and Paul kind of says, oh, I didn't know that about you. Mm-hmm. And you believe like that seems really well done and really believable. Yeah. And it adds so much characterization to Duke Leto that I don't even remember feeling that much towards him in the book. No, he's very he's very regal. Yeah. But like capable too, right. Like not distant like you have with the Baron where his his ability is in like you know his planning and his scheming and his mind games but other people do his dirty work yeah this stuff like, like that, right? the duke is very clearly shown as someone who shouldn't go out to view these spice refineries but mm-hmm. he chooses to do that because he wants to understand the ground level uh nature of the job that's been handed to mm-hmm. them on Ar- arrakis right yeah so i also like as we mentioned this is your introduction to the sandworms as well um and wait maybe my favorite like um Herbert universe term, which is worm sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just get, I, I get such a kick out of it. I love it. It's it, obviously it's, I've used it on the Instagram a number of times now. Um, but yeah, you have essentially, they, they show you how the sandworms are a threat that they, they, they seek out any sort of source of vibration or activity. Threat, yeah. yeah. And, and you have Gurney Halleck asking all these questions of the Imperial ecologist, uh, Leah Kynes, and she's able to answer them because they are questions that a character would be asking. They're not something that they all know, but they're asking the questions so that the audience can get the answers. You've got a bunch of, you know, of the the House of Trades are all foreigners to this entire system. It's very well-justified exposition where she explains, yes, a worm shows up every time. We call a carry-all. We get out of there. It's fine. Um... You look for worm sign. We've got spotters. Uh, Leto actually spots it with his naked eye. 
from you know five kilometers out another thing where it's just sort of points towards his yeah like all all those moments where he is like demonstrating his ability as not only a leader but also someone who takes action um Mm -hmm. all those things are capitalized on so well from the book to the film and not to keep going back to that it's just like this scene specifically is almost like verbatim from the book and yeah the way that they were able to carry out all the visuals is so impressive um Mm -hmm. The way that when he says, you know, damn the spice, I just want every man off that crawler now. The one one of the only yeah. knocks I have about this scene specifically is that I wanted there to be more of a moment where Kynes kind of takes a second to realize because they cut to her face watching they the reaction. One shot. But it's only like yeah. for a second. And I just I think mm-hmm. if you hold that shot for three seconds. You understand a lot more about what's going on in Kynes's mind because there's a lot more depth to her character that we don't know about going into the scene. Yeah. And that she has a lot. She has a lot of things going through her head in this moment. Like, this guy's actually very respectable. He's a very good leader. He cares about Mm -hmm. people over the spice. All these things are going through her head, and I think you just needed, like, two extra seconds with her face on that moment. I know you're fast to editing at this Mm -hmm. point in the scene, but that's my only knock there because I just wanted a bit more of Kynes' emotional reaction to things throughout the film as in general, not just this scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kynes is is maybe one of the one of the biggest losses from the book to the screen. Yeah, and and honestly, like a lot of their their stuff in the book would be difficult to translate, and I'd say difficult to justify. Maybe my favorite passage in the book is just about Kynes, uh, but it takes place just in Kynes' head. So, like, how do you how do you do that? Right? Yeah, but. and it it has nothing to do with like them changing the gender of the character. I thought that that was actually a really strong aspect of like mm-hmm. the pre production planning because, as Villeneuve said, there's not enough like women in this film and there needs to be true there needs to be like more of an emphasis on like the feminine power of this universe because it's actually Mm -hmm. a huge part of the universe that's just kind of a little understated and kinds i just thought Mm -hmm. that as one of my favorite characters from the novel this was a character that i wanted more emotional depth from than i got because she had enough screen time just not the emotional Mm -hmm. moments that i wanted exactly yeah yeah, no, I can see that. That's a good point. I don't want to. I don't um, want to like dwell on the negatives here, though, because yeah. that's just like one small part of a very large scene. I want to get into the sandworm. Yeah, well, so essentially, the next part in the scene after they've decided not worried about the spice, we're worried about the men. We need to find room for three more, and they they bring the thopters down to the sand, and everyone comes out, and it's Paul's first time on worm territory. I guess like he had been on the landing pad. In Arrakis and then in Arakeen, but this is his first time on the sand. On the, and on I love the spice, it. right? And and the spice, right? So, yeah, the spice is all in the air, and later they sort of refer to it as a potential, like, allergic reaction. But, I mean, it's a hallucinogenic spice is being breathed in by all of them, and he appropriately has sort of, like, a fit and visions um, while, while they're uh, shuttling the, the 21 men off of the crawler. Yeah, and I loved the editing around his vision because... You don't see what he's seeing. and We re-return to this scene when he's explaining to right, Jessica okay. what he saw, right? Like, they, they give it to you from his perspective again. Because this one's kind of... They give you some of his dream visions in this. But it's also, I'd say, it's edited a little bit, like, from the outside as well. Like, once Gurney Halleck realizes that Paul hasn't gotten back on the Thopter, he heads out to get him. And then they edit it like like they edit uh, the John Gabar scene, where, like, he's in a trance... He he speaks a line that he said earlier about recognizing Gurney Halleck's um, like gait or the sound of his footsteps, and then Gurney Halleck is like cut edits right behind him, yeah, and sort of picks him up and rushes. It him. really re- like the disorientation of the editing really reflects like 
the characters interstate well in the scene. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I give this movie tremendous credit for in general too. Just uh, ability to translate dream sequences and uh, the use of the voice, which I'm going to talk about a bit later. Mm-hmm. But the editing really complements the sense of narcolepsy, as Villeneuve put it in mm-hmm. one of the things I watched. Uh, it kind of induces the state of narcolepsy that is like just it's an like inner state of the coma. yeah, an inner state of the yeah. character, and the editing kind of just doesn't allow you. It like kind of cuts that time out of the film, so you mm-hmm. feel like as abrupt as the character does when he realizes oh, I've been in a trance for I don't know how long, and you kind of feel that same effect. Well, like the a similar thing to like when you wake up in the morning and you hit snooze on your alarm, and like you roll over and then your alarm goes off again, and it's fifteen minutes yeah. later. Right, like I, I think they very effectively reach that sensation of of loss of consciousness while things are still going on around you. And it's palpable, and you're right. Like Chalamet, I think he does a great job. There's a there's a lot of times where they they really drill down into the experience of Paul, and they don't make it look like reserved or regal or cool to be to maybe be the one. It's difficult and it's traumatic. Yeah, it's not like one of those kind of science fiction heroes that you envy or want to be he kind of demonstrates like how traumatic his state of mind is and his consciousness is like midway through the Mm -hmm. film when he has that breakdown with jessica but you you don't envy this character and his position in this world it's it's a brutal world and his yeah yeah, exactly like his visions are a total burden on everything that he stands for so he sees the death of his friends he sees the death of himself in metaphorical ways and and other ways and he sees people who would be friends that then it turns out they aren't like there's a lot the second rewatch was was very fruitful and i'm also i'm rereading the book again now Mm. so i mean there's just so much to dig into but i i do i do think like xiaomi does a great job and i love how they cut these these visions and then once sort of halleck gets him out of it and he's dragging him across the sand then you really like the sandworm is is upon you at that point and they introduce this really cool thing that you th- again see later where once the sandworm is underneath you the sand becomes like looser and you start sinking into it because it's like there's a you know there's a void underneath where you're on so they start sinking into it and they, they establish that concept and then the Lido brings down the thopter and they they run and they get into it and you get these great introductory shots of what the what the sandworms really look like. Yeah, it, you see it busting through the sand when Leto like points it out from kilometers away earlier. And I mm. I even like that stuff. Like that stuff is cool as shit to me. It was yeah. uh, mm-hmm. like you just see the tops of sand dunes like kind of bursting through the top. It's the scale is insane, and they they immediately they immediately really start to make it clear like how big these things are. Yeah, and it's not something that is easy to translate to screen. Even the most advanced like Marvel cinematic movies have had issues with scale, in my opinion. And those movies mm-hmm. are pretty brilliant CGI, with, you know, yeah. all things said and done. This movie, I, I've never felt scale like this. It never felt like... Because yeah. you see the size of the sand crawler and you're like, that thing is big. I remember like some of the sand crawlers from Star Wars looking big. This thing looks way yeah. bigger than those. And then you see the worm underneath this thing. And the worm, like, on a ratio, it looks like its mouth is about a kilometer wide. And mm-hmm. it's just engulfs yeah. this whole sand crawler. And the the visual of Chalamet, or sorry, of Paul and, and Halleck, Halleck yeah. on the escaping on the ornithopter. In the foreground. Yeah. Out of focus, and the the sandworm behind yeah. them just sort of, like, swallowing the crawler and the entire plane of operation that they were on when they were down Mm -hmm. there it's so cool and just on that point of scale 
in another video that I watched with Rebecca Ferguson. It's one of those ones where they recap their career and they talk about a bunch of characters. She talked a little bit on Dune and was talking about how in a later scene when they, they see a sandworm uh, come up out of the sand um, and they were being directed and they're like, okay, look up. And she looked up. They're like, no, 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 look up. And she looked up further and they're like, no, you look right up, look directly up. Right. Cause like, you know, they're obviously trying to get her eye line to match yeah. what she'd be looking at. That's and awesome. it was not clear to her at all how big the, the worm was supposed to be. Um, I, re- I remember in the hype train for this movie, I heard Chalamet in an interview say like, cause people were wondering how much CGI is in this movie. And he was asked how much green screen acting that he had to do. And he said, honestly, it was like three shots in front of a green screen. And yeah. you, it's true. Like a lot of the CGI is no, there's no actors in the CGI scenes. It's like just pure CGI. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like when the ship's flying through the city and stuff like that. And we've seen Villeneuve pull those shots off in Blade Runner quite recently. Mm-hmm. So those make perfect sense. But he does not have a lot of scenes where the actors are in front of a green screen. This being one of the very few shots that I could imagine him and Josh Brolin were in front of a green screen on the ship. And you have the... On a physical asset. Yeah. And then you, you you film them at that angle. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know. The fact you can't even really tell is insane. It's so it, cool. It's again... It, like, it cannot be overstated. This is a phenomenal-looking movie uh, in terms of direction and in terms of how the effects are, are integrated. The the costume design, like, we have the still suits in the scene, yeah. too, right? And just before it, you have basically uh, Leah Kynes shows them how it works. Again, you get some exposition about how these things recycle water and how, like, the movement of your limbs and your breathing pumps it around and cools you off and things like I, that. I really love that scene, actually, where she's checking the still suits. Mm-hmm. And yeah, again, like more characterization for Paul in terms of how, how, how much of a natural he is with the still suit. But the design is wild, uh, like the city shots, Eric Keen, the, the sand effects in the desert. Again, like we were talking after the movie with the people we saw it with. We were like, wonder like if any of the shots were like actual explosives in the desert just to like get that bloom of sand or how advanced, you know, sand engines just like smoke engines and fluid engines are in, in special effects. I would assume the latter, but you never know. It'd be very cool to see some some making of later on and find out they yeah. they they do worm sign with uh with TNT. Yeah, I am really looking forward to seeing how they did some of the sand effects. It's something that I'm really gonna look into once once that information becomes more available. Mm-hmm. Uh very intrigued because I wanna say it being Villeneuve and the way he tr- he chooses to make movies, he probably shot a lot of real sand, and then they took those elements and put them into like other spaces. That's that's mm-hmm. my guess, but uh, it was pretty flawless almost ever. And there's so much you have to do with sand. Like Tim, you already talked yeah. about like the ornithopters blowing the sand around when they land. You have mm-hmm. like the sinking into the sand, which obvi- which looks very real. I'm, I'm guessing that's all practical. I assume they're on like some big sifter stage. Or exactly, something, right? that kind of stuff. Sink- sinking into the mud has been done before, so like sinking into the sand probably wouldn't be too big of an issue. Um, mm-hmm. But once again, that's like you got all these things to consider: actor safety being paramount yeah. too. Yeah, they like you mentioned that you weren't sure based on D- Villeneuve. Like he definitely would have leaned towards practical, and I think that's still true. But it is worth noting that you know like. As a filmmaker, he's still growing. Uh, totally. He did mention that this is the this is the first movie he's ever had more than one unit on, right? They still shot single unit on Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which again that would have been Deacon's call though on that one. Okay, yeah, but this one he said like it's in this interview with Christopher Nolan. We'll link it. It's one of our recommendations. But he's basically saying that like if I hadn't had more than one unit, I'd still be filming it now, mm-hmm. right? There's just so much to cover. So still like you know 
focusing, prioritizing the best possible cinematic experience. But, you know, if you're working with Warner Brothers, they're going to put on HBO Max. If you're adapting Dune, you probably need more than one one unit to get all the footage that you need in time. 100%. Right? Like, a director can't be going around shooting all the stuff that has no actors in it. A director will have, like, their second unit director go shoot, say, like, the exposition shots of Kaladin. He approved those shots, of course, but... yeah he wouldn't be sent to Norway to just get a few shots of, of non-acting scenes. The, the, the director's job is to direct the actors. So anything that the actors are in, Villeneuve is likely on site, unless it was like one actor yeah. in a remote location, which I couldn't see Villeneuve skipping out on anyways. And to provide some context, just in case people are unfamiliar, another unit, like second unit, would shoot stuff that doesn't have any of like the lead cast in it, right? establishing shots um inserts environmental yeah, in, stuff inserts like that. too is a big part of it yep so yeah. any like especially like pickups when villeneuve is in post-production for instance he's covering all the special effects he's doing he's in the editing room i'm guessing and you need like a second unit to go and shoot like oh we we need a shot of like this hand on this item so mm-hmm. we'll send second unit out to grab that shot and it's not costing the studio a ton of money to send villeneuve back out for one shot yeah and, and yeah, second units can also sometimes do like action or fight scenes if they're entirely, entirely doubled for the actors, if the actors are doing none of their own stunts. Yeah, it's really scenes like where an actor is like on screen acting. A director's job is to guide the actors on how to act in the scene for mm-hmm. the emotional catharsis. Yeah, and I mean, again, that's, that's one of the reasons we pick this scene. It's got characterization, it's got emotion, it moves the plot forward, it provides exposition. You meet Shai Hulud. Right. It's just it's amazing. It's got it's got a lot of what you'd want to talk about in Dune. Unfortunately, it doesn't have the Harkonnens. It doesn't have Lady Jessica. Rebecca Ferguson gives a phenomenal performance in this. A lot of weight in it. Yeah, absolutely. Before we completely get out of this scene, though, um, I do want to mention like the the sound design because it it's not just in this scene. It's throughout the film. But the way that like we already mentioned how when Paul first steps out onto the spice field, there's a moment on just his feet touching the sand and the sound mm-hmm. all cuts out. It goes to like this really bassy kind of sound effect. And the same thing happens when the spice cloud hits all the men who are running towards the ornithopters, mm-hmm. but it hits Paul and then instantly the sound takes over. The sound plays such a big role in this movie because otherwise I think by like sucking out so much of the sound, you're adding so much more to like the character's interstate, but also like mm-hmm. you're removing all these complexities that don't need to be there. If you're trying to mix the sand crawler sounds, all the men running towards the ornithopters, the sandworm coming closer and closer, that's too many things almost happening. So it's really cool to see Villeneuve direct a scene where it's like, no, here's where all the audio is going to cut out. And then even the end of the scene where it's just all music over the sandworm Mm -hmm. consuming the sand crawler, it's not like we're hearing the machinery crinkle up inside this worm or anything like that. And that could have been just an unnecessary mess. Yeah, I think sound design is a really key tool in developing perspective. Yeah. Right? So if you are going to be, if it's a group scene, it's a big action scene, yeah, you need all your sound in there and lined up, and you need to see sound effects lining up with what's happening on screen. But if this is about Paul's experience, then yeah, drop it all out, right? It really locks you into what's what's precisely happening right there, not what's happening off screen, what's the sand crawler doing, what is what is Duke Leto yelling in orders? What is Leah Kynes doing? It's Paul just stepped onto the sand. Yeah. He t- he's here for the first time. He is he is on the path of his destiny, we think, you know? 
Uh, it really locks you into that that character's point. And of I view. think it makes the audience focus more on what's happening with Paul. Like it re- makes you realize, oh, this interaction with the spice in this moment is really important, and now it's going to continue being an important relationship between Paul and his understanding of the spice, which mm-hmm. we're not going to spoil too much yeah. about the the sequel film, but that's going to play a much larger role. It definitely will. And and just in terms of sound design too, like it has to be mentioned that like this is a this is a score that matches the size of the movie. It is huge sounding and it involves so many different um different applications of instruments or just development of new sounds. Like Zimmer was he said in interviews he didn't want it to even though I think you could apply like a traditional symphonic score. Symphonies have a lot of weight and they have a lot of ability and they they add a lot of grandeur. He wanted it to be a little bit more alien, a little bit percussive and a little bit grander. So everything feels a little unconventional in how he does it, but I think it fits so well. Like the opening stuff with that sort of like off-kilter drum um, jumble. He, He has a term for it in one of the interviews I read. I'll see if I can link it. Um, or using bagpipes for Caladan, or there's like a bassoon or something like mm-hmm. that that represents Arrakis and the Fremen. Something really deep. Everyone sort of gets the, yeah, everyone gets their own sort of style. Um, even like the worm has its own sort of theme and Chani, and, and you know, it's. I think it's a really, really well put together score that I think the couple times I've been listening to it on Spotify while I'm working, it opens up these new things that like you didn't hear before. You didn't know what was going on. I think, I think it's very masterfully put together. Yeah. Big props to Hans Zimmer again. Not that he needs any more accolades, but yeah, this is a really impressive evolution in his development as a composer. I think he could coast at this point if he wanted to, obviously, right? Like use more. Apparently they, there was like minimal or no temp tracking on this. Villeneuve was really obviously like he's against it and he was really insistent on not doing it. And I think that almost certainly helped Zimmer to make his own things instead of, you know, let's put in a big Mahler heavy symphony that I really like that, that fits the tone and then go from there. Yeah. I think Villeneuve's uh, uh, like his willingness to allow that creativity without like putting in temp tracks, like is why composers want to work with him too. Uh, shall we dive into our shout outs yeah we're gonna try to keep this bite size so yeah we'll do some shout outs and then we'll we'll give you a couple recommendations and then we'll we'll call it but uh yeah my shout out is just it's a it's a short little scene it's something that maybe didn't have to be in the movie but the design is so phenomenal and the actor that you get to see in it is uh is such a favorite that we're glad they included it and it's the scene on Seleucia Secundus uh, that's where the Sardaukar army is um, trained and where they where they operate in the Dune universe. Which is the Emperor's army, yes. you should say. Yes, the Emperor's blades. Um, they're supposed to be the most deadly warriors out there, but then also maybe the Fremen are. There's a bit of an arms raise in terms of who's the, the most deadly warrior. Um, it's just this great little scene. It has a guy doing like throat singing, like this high priest character. Uh, you have like initiates or victims being like reverse crucified and being used as a part of a ritual to anoint the new members of the Sardaukar army and then you get our boy um David Malstastian Desmalchian I <laughs> David Desmalchian uh as Peter DeVries I don't think they actually say his name in the movie No do I they? I don't even think they call it, they don't even really say the word mentat I don't think they do either um 
Sorry, that's a that's a lot of extra stuff. <laughs> Mentats are essentially in in Dune. There are no computers and there's no AI. They were outlawed thousands of years before Dune takes place, and so certain people have been trained to do high level computations. And that's they're called Mentats. That's Thufir Hawat uh, for the Atreides and Peter Devries for uh, the Harkonnens. So he's there to essentially enlist a couple battalions of Sardaukar to fight with the Harkonnens when they take over Arrakeen. And you just you get just a buttload of great design setting and tone and music and you just it's it's a little tiny investment in making sure you understand that like these guys are deadly and they're creepy and they're scary yeah it adds a level of sheer coldness to the harkonnens that i don't think would exist without this scene like it's what really encapsulates their pure evil Mm -hmm. and that's just i i mean i loved it it stuck with me after the movie and it was something i look forward to seeing again and again in a two hour and 40 minute movie um, I think they could have gotten by with just having the Sardaukar show up and be better fighters in action. This just adds so much more flavor and texture to it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very glad it made it in there and I didn't have to wait until we got the Blu-ray and watch a deleted mm-hmm. scene. Uh, what's your shout-out? Uh, so my shout-out is just a more general one. It's just uh, the way that the the voice, and I'm using quotations there, mm-hmm. was used throughout the film. Um, it's kind of initiated right away in like the second scene of the film by Lady Jessica, who tells Paul he needs to use the voice to give her the glass of water. And the voice is basically in the book, I understood it to be some way of controlling the person you're speaking with through tone. So you're using mm-hmm. a specific tone to like kind of hypnotize the other person into doing something for you. And this is something that yeah. takes tremendous amount of training. And it's something that the Bene Gesserit, who Jessica represents, train within their their own kind. But Paul is has been fortunate enough to be Jessica's son, and she's taught him the way. Mm-hmm. The way that this is portrayed in the film is kind of like we talked about in Paul's psychedelic experience, where it's so insular. It's done through all these tremendous sound tricks, and it just creates this sense of narcolepsy or like a small coma that mm-hmm. creates this gap in the consciousness. And you understand what's happening inside these characters' minds. I thought it was brilliantly introduced in that first scene with Jessica and Paul. And then I thought it was carried out tremendously throughout the film. It kind of evolved as the audience became familiar with it. It doesn't need to rely Mm -hmm. on explaining it so thoroughly to you each time. It kind of uh, normalizes or becomes more casually implemented throughout the film. And I thought that was pretty brilliant because not something easily translatable to cinema. Yeah, I like that in that first scene, they kind of show you how he fails and how he succeeds with it and what that looks like. The success is always predicated by like all the other sound drops out as he sort of focuses. And then the command that he speaks is out of alignment with the movement of his mouth. And then it's also always edited very subjected to the person who is being being controlled by the voice, except in a in a later scene they, they do it from, from Paul and Jessica's perspective as they're they're commanding other people. But the other thing I just want to mention, it's in the notes on a scene video with Denny Villeneuve, where he says this is another way that he sort of injected the feminine power into the movie that wasn't as well represented in the book where the way that the voice sounds is like multiple voices layered on top of each other all sort of like demanding the the thing that is being commanded and he said to him it's like the voices of all grandmothers past so it's a lot of like elderly female voices that are like yelling and making this command it's a really cool production effect yeah for the most part i thought it was pretty flawless and once again just something i didn't expect to see so well translated to the movie version Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so that's our shout-outs. And then I'd say just for recommendations, I think we can both agree you should definitely read the book if you haven't. You've got two years or so until the next movie's out. So don't uh, don't let that movie spoil it for you. Get the get in there on the book first. Yeah, the book is pretty brilliant. Just uh, make sure you refer to the, uh, to the, the glossary, glossary because not everybody yeah. knows that when they pick up Dune and are wondering why all these terms are being thrown at you. There is a glossary mm-hmm. that is meant to be consumed with the book so don't think of it as this giant obstacle in your way just try and read the book it's it's pretty brilliant mm-hmm. and then also we've got linked in the show notes uh, notes on a scene where denny villeneuve basically just does single serving cinema on the gom jabbar scene and then also a uh, an episode of the director's cut podcast where christopher nolan interviews denny villeneuve about dune and uh really just sort of gushes over it he's he's they gush fan. over each other yeah they do but uh yeah that's it for a little bite-sized episode thanks so much for listening if you haven't seen dune yet go to a theater and see it if you're nearby go to imax and see it fear is the mind killer